Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you think of an inventor off the top of your head, you'll probably think of, I don't know, Thomas Edison, perhaps, or the Wright brothers, or George Stevenson, maybe somebody in a top hat, a Victorian with a waistcoat, etc., etc. Or maybe not, maybe you think of Steve Jobs or someone from Silicon Valley, somebody like that. But if you think about the idea of invention, that light bulb moment when the spark first hit, that moment of clarity enters your head, who do you think of? It's probably Archimedes. And that moment, as he heaves himself out of the bath, spilling water everywhere, and runs stark naked down the streets of Syracuse, shouting, Eureka! It's the most famous bath of all time. But what on earth was he so excited about? And who really was Archimedes anyway? Hello and welcome once again to Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions brought to you from History Hits. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Today, I'm going to discover the truth behind the legend that is Archimedes with the help of the wonderful Armand Dangor. He's a professor of classics at Oxford University and he's the author of the book, How to Innovate, an Ancient Guide to Creative Thinking. We're going to talk about Archimedes. We're going to explore the tech scene that was prevalent in ancient Greece. And we're going to discuss why the Industrial Revolution didn't happen in ancient Greece. Enjoy the show. Archimedes jumping out of a bath, yelling, Eureka! And then setting off running stark naked down the street. It's the defining image of that moment of breakthrough, that moment of invention. And it turns out that Archimedes was really part of an ancient technological scene that was on the cusp of a revolution. But who was Archimedes? Why did he jump out of the bath? Did he really jump out of the bath? And what does all this tell us about the nature of invention? I am joined by Armand Dangor, a classical historian and the author of the book, How to Innovate, an Ancient Greek Guide to Creative Thinking. Armand, nice to have you. Why have we taken so long to get you on the show, given that the whole premise of the show is basically your thesis? You should have been on like episode one. The only problem, of course, is that... But you weren't. <laughs> is that some people don't believe that innovation in the modern sense, has anything to do with the way the ancient Greeks innovated. I beg to differ because I think, you know, there's something about the human desire to create new things. Yes, it was a different context. Yes, it was a different historical period. Yes, they were creating different kinds of new things. But somehow the principles of innovation are embedded in the ancient Greek cultural experience. And I think we can extract them and say some interesting things about the nature of innovation by thinking about the ancient Greek experience of it. 
And I, it's funny how, well, I'm interested in talking to you about this idea of the eureka moment. I suppose when we think of the eureka moment, Newton, the apple falling on his head or whatever it might be, we're sort of slightly jumping ahead. I just want to kind of start with Archimedes generally. First of all, who was Archimedes? Let's start there and then we'll go on to the myth and then we'll go on to bigger theories. So he was an ancient Greek inventor, mathematician and an all-round genius. He lived in the 3rd century BC. His dates are around 287 to 212 when he died. That's an important date because that was the date at which the Romans conquered the city of Syracuse, which was the bigger city on the island of Sicily, and killed him. And so he was born there. So how did he become an inventor? Was he an inventor at all? Or what was his background? Like, I'm just trying to work out what sort of myth and what's... Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, he was a genius at working out mathematical and engineering principles. So this is a question of the stuff that goes on in your mind. How does friction work? Or how do you find the volume of a cone? These are questions of mathematical intricacy that only someone with that kind of brain can really tackle. And it had a longish history in ancient Greek. I mean, we might go back to a semi-mythical character like Pythagoras, but Pythagoras's followers and pupils, whose names we know, people like Hippasus and Philolaeus and Theaetetus and so on, real mathematicians started to come up with genuine mathematical and geometrical proofs in the 5th century BC. And so in the 4th century, in that century, there was already an established tradition of Greek mathematics. Science, i.e. inventing things, hadn't really started to happen. And this is what's so interesting. They were just on the cusp of a technological revolution, which began in a way with the military-industrial complex, because the first things that we know about as being invented as machines are machines of war. But he was part of this new wave, this sort of mathematical revolution, where suddenly you had this group of people who were measuring and systematically looking at nature and such. Yes. I mean, up to a point, he was part of that. But he was the most empirical of the lot in many ways. The idea that he could turn his inventive mind to creating actual mechanisms. And he was asked, because the self-governing city was governed, in fact, by someone who was called a tyrant. Hieron was the name of the man. And Hieron did task Archimedes with creating weapons of war. Things like the catapults and the ballistas were known and they hadn't first been invented in Sicily, in fact, a generation or so before Archimedes. But Archimedes clearly made huge advances as a result of which it was very difficult for the Romans, who were, of course, an incredibly effective fighting machine, to capture Syracuse. It took them years <laughs> and they found themselves being killed in vast numbers by these weapons that Archimedes had invented. So basically, he was the kind of Lockheed Martin <laughs> of the day. Amongst other things. How did he get that reputation? Like, well, at what point did he go from, OK, I'm going to figure out the volume of a cone to, right, I'm going to... I don't think we really know how or when, because many centuries later, people start compiling Archimedes' writings and start talking about the stories. Well, the Eureka story is one, of course. Vitruvius is the first person, a Roman writer in the first century BC, to record the idea of him jumping out of the bath shouting Eureka. Can we just put that myth to bed or not to bed? I don't know. He was fond of a bath? No, it's a very important myth, I think. <laughs> OK, first of all, just tell us what the myth is for anyone who doesn't know. OK, so the story goes that Archimedes was commissioned by the tyrant of 
Syracuse, whose name was Hieron, to assess whether or not the crown that had been fabricated for him in gold did actually consist of pure gold. And for some reason, Hieron was suspicious that he'd provided certain amounts of pure gold to a craftsman, and the craftsman had created this crown but had adulterated it with silver so that he could pilfer some of the more valuable stuff. I mean, it's all a bit nonsensical, in fact, because who would do such a thing? But anyway, that was the story. And he said, so here's this very intricate object. He said to Archimedes, but I'm not sure whether it's made of pure gold. Can you work out whether it is? And Archimedes was very perplexed by this and thought, oh, how on earth is that possible? I can't. Now, the way they used to test for gold. Spectroscopy, easy. <laughs> well, quite. But the way they used to test for gold was something similar to spectroscopy. They used to rub it on testing some sort of very rough piece of wood or brick or something, and it would leave a mark. And you could judge, if you were an expert, whether that mark showed that it was gold. But you couldn't do that with the crown. You know, you might get a bit that was gold and a bit that was silver. It was called assaying. Anyway, he was basically asked to assay this thing, but he couldn't assay it physically. And so the story is, he thought, well, obviously... If it is adulterated with silver, silver is a slightly lighter material than gold. So the same amount of gold and silver will weigh less than a mass of pure gold. Okay, So he thought, well, how will I work out whether the weight of this object can give me a clue to its mass? But how will I work out whether it is actually adulterated. In other words, how do I discover the density of something? Now, look, if I put a block of stone into a bath, the water rises. If I put the same weight of wood into a bath, the water is going to spill over the top because obviously a stone is going to weigh much more than the equivalent in wood. So the lighter the material, the more it displaces of water. That's the basic point. So Archimedes goes to the bath, gets in it, sees the water level rises, realises that his body is displacing a large amount of water because it has this mass, and realises that metal of the same weight would not displace anything like as much water. And so he comes up with the principle of how to measure the density of an object using water. This is the story. He jumps out of the bath shouting, Heureka, which is the Greek for, I've found it, I've got it. If he put the same amount of gold into a very finely graded bathtub of some kind with measurements, then it would be possible to say that that displaces slightly less water than gold and silver of the same weight. Okay, so that's the story. He ran down the street naked, shouting, I got it. And the story, which, as Vitruvius tells it, is he then went to the king and he proved that, in fact, the crown had been adulterated and the fabricator was duly punished. So that's the way this ancients like stories to end. Success for one person, death for someone else. It's a really, it's a good story. I'm just looking, I'm sorry, I just pulled a book from my bookshelf and it's my cherished Hamelin Younger Children's Encyclopedia from the 1970s. And in it, there we go. Look, I'm holding it up to the camera. Ah, oh, Archimedes in his bath. We have Archimedes in a really nice looking bath, <laughs> like very, very hot. But if you look on the cabinet beside him, you can see the scales. Ah, right. And on the scales is an illustration of some gold. This picture is ingrained in my brain because I looked at it a lot in the 70s, but I'd never noticed the scales before. And just as you were talking about gold, I'm like, hang on a sec. And there you go. Gosh. So you weigh the same amount and you see whether it displaces as much water. There are more clever ways of doing it because, in fact, we'd have to have extremely 
well-calibrated objects actually to do that in practice, especially in something like a gold object or a gold and silver one. It couldn't have been done in practice, really. I'm guessing it's an apocryphal story. I'm guessing it's not nothing to do with that whatsoever. Well, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're... And in fact, my book actually explains what I think the true story is. Tell us. Okay, well, I think this has puzzled a lot of scholars over the years for various reasons. First of all, it's not that clever an invention for someone as brilliant as Archimedes to discover the principle of how to measure the density of an object. But why? If he's only just discovered how to do the volume of a cone, then presumably like the buoyancy principle is as new and as radical as the volume of a cone. Oh, well, just a moment. The, the point is that the buoyancy principle is the thing that is really interesting about what Archimedes does. That is a very important principle. To cut a long story short, what I think the Eureka story is about is his discovery of the buoyancy principle. Now, the buoyancy principle is that if a body is immersed in water, the force of the water pushing upwards has to be equal or greater than the force of the body pushing down for that body to float. The basic Archimedes principle is still called the Archimedes principle. But we happen to know that nobody seems to put two and two together. We happen to know that Archimedes was commissioned not to, say, a crown, but to build a giant ship. And we have absolutely extraordinary detail over pages and pages of an ancient author called Athenaeus describing this giant ship that he built, 50 times bigger than any ship that had been built before, could carry 600 men. It had huge weapons on board. It had a gymnasium. It had a temple to Venus. It had hot tubs. It, well, it had hot tubs. It, had, it was basically the Titanic of the ancient world. It was basically like an aircraft carrier of the day, wasn't it? It was basically yes. like the kind of a ridiculous warship. It was a huge warship. It contained huge amounts of stores. And it was sent as a gift to the only ruler whose city could accommodate it. And that was King Ptolemy of Alexandria, because Alexandria has a very deep bay. So that's what Hiram did. He gave it as a gift. It was called the Syracusia. But the thing is, he must have said at some point, I want you to build a ship as big as a mountain, but is the bloody thing going to float? I mean, it's going to be so heavy. And of course, the principle of buoyancy answers that question. It doesn't matter how heavy it is, as long as it's built in such a way that the force of the water buoying it up is greater. I'm surprised though, because presumably they, I mean, people have been building ships and boats for eons before Archimedes. So they must have had an instinctive idea of how things float or the basic mathematics of how things float before that. Well, I think they might well have had an instinctive understanding of why things float. Did he do the maths then? Did he do the formula? Did he kind of crack that? He cracked the formula. And I think that was the exciting thing for him. I think it was an intellectual discovery. And you can imagine that actually getting into the bath and thinking, so why does the body float or not float, is what would have led him to this really important discovery of the principle of buoyancy. So he could go and prove to Hiron that it doesn't matter how big it is, it doesn't matter how heavy it is, the principle shows that it will float under the right conditions. And I think that's why he then jumped out of his bath, if indeed he did. And I think, in a way, the story is so colourful, it probably does go back to some kind of reality. And he does seem to have been a bit of an absent-minded inventor type. So if he could well have run down the road naked after his bath, shouting, Heureka, I've discovered it. Or Great Scott, maybe in a sort of back to the future kind of. <laughs> it's funny how that kind of exclamation has become the trademark of the mad scientist or the mad inventor. Absolutely. Well, when the Romans eventually did break the siege of Syracuse, they did so because basically someone, as usual, let them in. It wouldn't have happened otherwise with all of Archimedes' brilliant machines. A Roman soldier found Archimedes 
poring over the design of some new invention of his. The Romans, if you're told by their commander, Marcellus, on no account are you to kill this man. He's a very important inventor. And Archimedes said, stop interrupting me. I'm working on something very important. And the soldier killed him on the spot. But, you know, that's the sort of feeling one gets. Archimedes was always deeply involved in what he was doing. And so you can imagine that when he cracked the principle of buoyancy, he was so excited that he probably did run out of his bath. And it may not have been an actual bathtub. Because here's the other thing. When you go to the baths in ancient Greece, you go to this place where you get steamed and you scrape yourself down, you go into a cold thing. Basically, that's what going to the bath is. And there were lots of these bathhouses around Syracuse. I mean, I suspect some of them did have bathtubs, but I don't think you need a bathtub. So it could be, and, and I think this is another principle that emerges from this story, it could be about what are the conditions that lead to a creative breakthrough. Yeah, well, people have it in the shower, don't they? People have creative breakthroughs in the shower. Exactly, the shower. And why is that? Because you switch off and something happens to your beta waves in your brain when you switch off. And I think this is a terribly important principle of creativity, which is you have to immerse yourself first in whatever you're doing. So you can't create something with no background of knowledge at all. You really have to know. But then you won't necessarily find the solution simply by painstakingly pouring over the same problems over and over again. You go to sleep, or you switch off, or you go to the gym, or you go to the pool, or you go to the bath, or you go to the shower, and then the insight emerges. I think that's a very good lesson, actually. I always find if I get writer's block or anything block, just going for a walk, and suddenly it kind of anaesthetizes what I call the watchers at the gate, the watchers that stand on guard in your brain and act as stopping all the brilliant ideas getting in. And if you can distract the watchers at the gate, then suddenly the wonderful ideas will start to... But yes, you have to switch off. You have to sort of not look for them. Yeah, I think it is an oscillation between intensive engagement and switching off. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered in that Deptford Inn? Was Amy Dudley, wife of Elizabeth I's favourite Robert, pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Were the Guise that great French family, actually bloodthirsty murderers who secured their power through ruthlessness and violence. And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me, but not on an empty stomach, for not just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just uh, quickly, you talked about Archimedes' inventions. Can you just rattle through a few of his inventions? So... Obviously, buoyancy principle, you mentioned catapults, another war type thing. The one I'm thinking of is, is the screw, the Archimedes screw. The Archimedes screw was supposed to be an object which could extract water, I think, from the bilge of a boat. So if a boat was being filled with water, you could use this large screw-like mechanism to pull the water up. And that was considered to be a very useful, practical invention of his. Another typical invention, though, which is famous, these war inventions, one was the claw <laughs> which apparently could grab enemy ships and pull them out of the water. So levers and pulleys, that's very much Archimedes' thing. This famous statement of his, give me the right place to stand and I can move the earth. So, of course, you're right. If you have a lever system, you can put a very light weight on the end of a fulcrum in order to lift something up. If you get it in the right place, you can move anything. Right at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about the kind of principles and the ideas behind invention. And it's interesting because in my kind of work, thinking about invention and inventors, it's very rarely kind of one person in a single eureka moment. And that's not how innovation really works. And I'm interested in your kind of thesis about the Greeks and how they innovated compared to modern innovators now. So I'd like to kind of just expand on that a little bit. That's a very important point, that in the ancient world, you still have room for the individual inventor, the individual genius. Mm. But it clearly is also someone who has to have a background. There has to be the conditions to innovate have to include the kind of knowledge that go into informing someone who will come up with a new idea. So one of the standard ways in which innovation happens is you have a body of knowledge and you just add a small bit to that, or you adapt what is already there. Basically, adaptation is almost another word for innovation. I think Steve Jobs said, you know, I just take an idea and I tweak it. And that tweak, that adaptation of the existent material is one of the key mechanisms of innovation. And we can see that in all kinds of examples from the ancient Greek world, they were building on what others had done, others in their own culture, but others in other cultures. So the ancient Greece was well located in the ancient world between cultures, ancient cultures such as Egypt, which was thousands of years old, and say had produced great architectural wonders, such as its temples and its statues. And you can see the early statues of the Greeks are very similar to ancient Egyptian statuary. They're rather static and they have a standing pose. And very quickly, within about 100 years, 
the Greeks have started to move on to much more fluid, realistic styles of sculpture. Now, you could say that is simply adapting the materials that they had got from ancient Egypt and the way that sculptures were produced. But it brings in a second principle, which is cross-fertilization. And cross-fertilization is taking a different aspect of the world and applying it in such a way that you get something new from the combination. And what were they cross-fertilizing? Well, in the case of statuary, they had their athletic games. And so they could see that there were muscles and sinews. They could see how the body actually worked. And you can imagine sculptors producing Egyptian-style statues thinking, but you know what? There's an amazing sinew that I would love to paint to that point of the sculpt. And so that's one. And the other, of course, is the beginnings of Greek medicine, where they were literally taking bodies and looking at these things. So if you bring medicine and athletics and you apply it to sculpture, you get fluid, fantastic classical sculpture. You get these incredible movements of bodies who look so realistic. The discus thrower of Myron, where he's pivoting on the ball of a foot as he throws the discus. That kind of thing you could never have found 100 years earlier. We see all these innovations in the art, the visual arts, but also in drama as well. If we want to understand drama, we go back to Aristotle as well and the poetics and such, but also obviously in science. Go back to Greek tragedy. Oliver Taplin's Greek Tragedy in Action, I remember, was one of my set texts. Did you do class or something? Um, (laughs) I had a flashback to studying Sophocles, Theban plays, Sophocles, Euripides, Euripides, Eumenides. Anyway, that was the joke. (laughs) The one that you mentioned, actually, that fascinated me, you mentioned steam power. Now, I remember there was, and I can't remember who or where or why, but in antiquity, there was this idea of a globe which was filled with steam with little jets and it heated up and it was a didn't really do anything, but it was a demonstration of steam power. And I wonder, you had this great civilization, this great moment in history of enlightenment. Could they have gone on to have a mini industrial revolution like long before the industrial revolution? I think it's quite possible as a hypothetical history that had the Greeks not been conquered by the world of Macedon, Alexander the Great, essentially, which then led to a highly militarized world. Alexander died young. His generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus and so on, carved up the empire of Alexander and fought each other. And then the Romans, who were a growing power, came and destroyed them. So what we have is centuries of warfare. And had it not been for this turn to warfare, I mean, yes, the Greek independent city-states were always fighting each other, but they still had a lot of time and energy to innovate. But I think after you had these world powers competing with each other, it was much more important to have the manpower simply to go and destroy and conquer and enslave. And of course, one of the reasons why the ancient world in some ways didn't invent practical things that, you know, washing machines or whatever, was because they had slaves to do all these things. And slavery was so widespread and so accepted that the invention of amenities was really never something the ancients cared very much about. Although they did come up with the idea of robots. I mean, they didn't build robots, but the idea of automons. Automatons, yes. Automatons was very much thought of as an idea, mechanical humans that could do the laborious tasks of humans. Yeah, there's a wonderful book on this by Adrienne Mayer called Gods and Robots. But she talks about these amazing imaginative 
objects and mechanisms, these self-moving robots who serve guests at the god Hephaestus's palace and so on. They certainly had the imagination to think of those things. Whether they ever thought they could be a reality is, is a moot point. It's true that we perhaps don't know enough about the history of actual invented machines, because in the Hellenistic period, that is after the classical period, when the centre of gravity of culture moves to Alexandria and Egypt, you have these emperors like the Ptolemies putting on grand events, which include things like famously vast mechanical animals going through the streets. And there's one bizarre story about a huge mechanical snail, which crawled through the streets down the central avenue in, in procession, leaving a trail of slime behind it. Someone had invented this object. <laughs> right. That's awesome. That's an important invention. Well, you know what I mean? That's right. I mean, so when you, we talk about steam power, the earliest thing we hear about it was this brilliant inventor called Archytas, who was a friend of Plato and a follower of Pythagoras, inventing a mechanical bird which flew using steam power. Really? So steam power was there, but I'm just amazed that with all that going on, no one thought, why don't we make a train? Or Well, maybe they would have done given a few more centuries. It could have been an industrial revolution, but it didn't happen. One thing I just suddenly came into my mind, actually, just talking about trains in the ancient Greeks. I seem to remember, not a train, but the first railway tracks or the first idea of railway tracks linked a bit of outcrop of one body of water in Greece to another. They had these train tracks in the cobbled streets, which provided a frictionless or a less frictionless way of pushing a cart along. Because, of course, you can't have a train without tracks. They had to pull ships across the Straits of Corinth. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, and they created this pathway so that you could pull ships across on wheels. I mean, of course, there were those kinds of things happening, but this wasn't the same thing as trains on tracks, let alone steam power. You can imagine, okay, they had not quite train tracks, but they had these things cut in the road that let you push ships from A to B. They had steam power, kind of, not in a practical or a useful way, more of a novelty, it seems. It seems like a small logical leap to come up with, I know, Eureka, why don't we build a train? So what's happening elsewhere to stop this happening? Answer, you've got the Macedonians under Philip and then his son Alexander creating vast armies. And what is their inventive USP? Longer spears, these massively long sarissas that they hold in front of them. What is their strategic USP? marching through the night. What do they do to win their battles? They suborn enemies, they bribe them. They are basically doing everything they can to win wars of conquest. And so they're not really thinking about these obscure individuals creating funny things like mechanical birds and how that might possibly help the war effort. At this stage, it just doesn't matter. As far as they're concerned, They've got their machines. They've got these huge catapults and ballistas, these wheeled machines that can break sieges. And when you think that the ancient world is all about breaking sieges, you have walled towns throughout the Aegean and the Near East, and you need to basically batter them down because you can't necessarily logistically stay there forever while you starve them out. So it really is necessity being the mother of invention. Without the necessity to build something, it's just not going to... It's just not going to happen without necessity, but with the conditions generally. So one of the things I talk about, about why ancient Greeks were so inventive, is because precisely at a certain period, and one can look at 
the so-called archaic and classical period between around 750 BC and 400. And precisely during that period, you have a lot of elements that come together that allow for invention. For example, you get relative freedom to think. So equality, the kind of equality that leads to Athenian democracy, citizen equality, only among men really, women aren't included or slaves, but still citizen equality gives people the chance to think, well, you know, I can come up with an idea. No one's going to kill me for it. You know, it might work. In fact, I might get something out of it in terms of praise and acclaim, because that's something they're interested in. So you have condition number two, incentive. They have incentives. It's not just praise and acclaim. You can actually make money by doing these things. So in the early 4th century BC, Dionysius of Syracuse actually sets up a public competition to invent and to create new weapons of war. And people flood into Syracuse is earlier than Archimedes' time, and they create all kinds of new war weapons as a result of that. So what you have is two sorts of conditions. You also have a third condition, which was easy access. So you have ships sailing across the Aegean, you have a lot of interchange of trades and ideas. So you've got a lot of that happening. And you have alphabetic literacy, really for the first time, alphabet coming to Greece in the 8th century. By the 5th century, it's become widespread. So you can write a treatise. This is how I did it. You can then critique that treatise and say, you could do it better. So you've got all these conditions for the growth of inventiveness happening. And in a way, a lot of these are shut down by the unifying force of Macedonian supremacy and then Roman supremacy. Is your thesis that those conditions that you've identified there are universal when we think about innovation in modern times? They have to be there. You have to be able to take risks. You have to be able to put your energy into something that is not doing you know, what you do every day. You have to be able to be respected as an individual rather than just, you know, forget about this man and his mechanical bird. What matters is the king and his ability to conquer or whatever. So all of these conditions are very important. And of course, the democratization of the world has meant for vastly greater kinds of inventiveness as a result. That's interesting. And I like your idea as well of the notion of just tweaking things a little bit to make things better. Actually, funnily enough, I was thinking of Newton. You know, I mentioned earlier Newton's eureka moment where the apple fell on his head, although I'm sure it didn't fall on his head. Another one of those apocryphal stories. Although Woolsthorpe Manor, I've been there many times and there is an apple tree there. So who knows? (laughs) Maybe. But anyway, there was a story. I don't know if it's, I I don't know where I heard it from. Newton became head of the Royal Mint in Britain, as far as I know. And there was a problem, a little bit like Archimedes and his crown, where the coin makers said, listen, we've got a problem. The coins, as they are, people are cutting bits off the coins. And How are we going to solve that problem? How are we going to sort that? But taking the metal off. A short changing, I think it was called. That's right. Where unscrupulous merchants would actually take because the coins were made of precious metal. And Newton looked at this coin and go, well, I know what you do. What you do is you put a little ridge around it, a little ridge, a milled edge around it. And then if you see someone, the milled edge has been tampered with, you know something's happened. And it's a simple little invention. I like that. The beginnings of security. I don't know if it's true. Maybe it's true. I think it is, actually. And I think, well, certainly that is what created more stability in coinage. Snipping coins, is, in fact, I think it was punishable by death, snipping coins, yes. So it's always been a problem if they consist of genuine precious metal. So someone can snip loads of them and then create more of them. (laughs) Anyway, there you go. There's a bonus story for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, I think that in that sense, there are all kinds of conditions that lead to inventive ideas 
but you've got to be in a position to put them into action. Now, you talk about, well, we've mentioned adaptation. We've mentioned cross-fertilization. There's a third big principle, which is simply reversal. They've always done it this way. We can do it the opposite way. And that has various ramifications. So in terms of ancient stories, one of the stories people love is about ancient hoplites' warfare. In other words, the heavy-armed infantry of ancient Greece, they used to have these phalanxes and they would line up on a level field and try and bash each other like two rugger scrums. And they always put their best fighters on the right flank. And the way these wars tended to work was that the right flank would always push through the weaker left flank of the enemy. And the ones who did that the quickest could then roll up the flank and the other side would then put their arms up and surrender. So they didn't kill millions of people as a result. You know, the first flank to break through would be the winner. And the best fighters were always the Spartans. So they'd put their best people on the right and they'd win battle after battle. And then in 371 BC, at the Battle of Leuctra, a Theban general called Epaminondas does something amazing. He puts his best fighters on the left side. And this is an amazing success against much greater forces. The Spartans can't break through on that side. They can't understand it. We're not getting through. And meantime, if Amenondas got his right flank, the weaker one, to retreat. So the Spartans thinking, oh, well, this is easy. And of course, he then wheels them around and he destroys them. And so we're told that this so-called reverse phalanx of Epaminondas was a huge success. And he did it a second time, but unfortunately died in the second battle. And nobody ever did it again. (laughs) There we go. We've got the recipe, ladies and gentlemen, for innovation. Three principles. Three principles. Adapt, cross-fertilize, and reverse. There we go. So think of your idea, but think of it within those three principles. And the conditions have to be there, as we've said. And the conditions have to be right. Exactly right. Hey, listen, Ahmed, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, <laughs> Thank you so you. much for joining us. We've put some myths to bed. We've told the story of Archimedes. We've looked at innovation more generally. What more could we want? Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope that inspires you. I hope if you have a brilliant idea in whatever field that you are involved in, you will suddenly remove all of your clothes and run naked down the streets. Do get in touch with photographs and tell us all about it if you do. And if you've got an idea for a suggestion or a topic that you think we should cover on the show, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com or you can gently stalk me on social media or you can stop me on the streets, clothed or unclothed, depending on circumstances. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your company. As always, I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive, 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.